Well met, friends. I'm Steph Midlock. And I'm Jude Vase. Welcome to Atherbeth, a podcast exploring the clever curators of Tolkien's Legendarium. We have hey. a very special episode for you this month. Hey, what's up? Hi, Jude. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm excited about this episode. Me too. Me too. It's great. It worked out beautifully. Like the stars aligned to make this happen. And I, I'm just like so jazzed about it. And listeners, I really hope you enjoy it. Um, oh, just really quick. Happy holiday season to everybody. It's December. I hope you all are doing well. The holidays are not always easy. And so I, I send you my best wishes for an easy holiday season. <laughs> that is the <laughs> best way to wish the holidays, to, to wish people a good holidays. <laughs> This shit can be hard. Yeah. Whatever you're doing, however you celebrate, good luck. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> it can also be lovely and great, but I know it's also tough. No, so, that, that really yeah. says a lot about our generation who grew up <laughs> watching Die Hard and feeling a lot of kinship <laughs> with that movie and how holidays will feel. Seriously, strap in because it's December. It's here again. Yep. <laughs> oh, brother. Well. Let's get into this episode. Right now, there is a fantastic exhibition at Haggerty Museum of Art at Marquette University called J.R. Tolkien, The Art of the Manuscript. The exhibition explores Tolkien's work through the lens of the manuscript tradition that was vital to both the professor's scholarly work and his subcreation. The exhibition showcases 147 objects from the Rainer Library. <laughs> the Bodleian Library in Oxford, and other lenders, many of which have never been exhibited or published before. On today's show, we are joined by the co-curators of this amazing exhibition, Dr. William M. Fliss and Dr. Sarah C. Schaefer. Bill is the archivist and curator of the J.R.R. Tolkien Collection at Rayner Memorial Libraries at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And Sarah is the Assistant Professor of Modern Art in the Department of Art History at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. We had the best time interviewing them all about the creation and curation of this blockbuster show. J.R. Tolkien, The Art of the Manuscript, is open until December 23rd, 2022, so there is still time to go see it. A huge thanks to Sarah and Bill for joining us. We've got many curatorial paths to tread. So let's begin. Steph and I would like to welcome two esteemed guests to Atherbeth today. They are the co-curators of the monumental exhibition titled J.R.R. Tolkien, The Art of the Manuscript, taking place at the Haggerty Museum of Art at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This exhibition started on August 19th, 2022 and closes on December 23rd. So there is still time to see it if you have not already done so. And we highly encourage you to do so. Yes, yes, yes. I had the privilege of seeing the exhibition last week when I was in Milwaukee and I absolutely loved it. Uh, Jude and I are so excited to have the co-curators here today. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Sarah Schaefer and Dr. William Fliss. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you for being here. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Perhaps we can start with Sarah. Sure. Uh, thanks for inviting us both to be on the podcast. So as you've already said, I'm 
one of the co-curators of this exhibition. My normal day job is I'm assistant professor in the Department of Art History at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, so just across town from Marquette. And my research generally focuses on European and American art and kind of transnational relationships in the 19th and early 20th century. Tolkien has always just been, I've just been a big fan of Tolkien and had never really merged my art art historical work and my Tolkien fandom before this exhibition. So that was one of the really fun aspects of this project. But yeah, uh, I guess that's about it for now. That's great. Thank you. And Bill? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm Bill Fliss. I'm the I guess the title I've been using lately is Tolkien Archivist at Marquette University. So I'm responsible for the J.R. Tolkien collection here in the Department of Special Collections and University Archives. We're located in the Rayner Library on Marquette's campus. Um, the exhibition is at the Haggerty Museum, which is nearby, but that's where that exhibition is happening. And uh, I'm the co-curator, co-curator along with Sarah of that, um, and and that came flowed naturally out of my work here, working with the collection. Um, I have a doctorate in history, although not in anything related to Tolkien. So, so <laughs> Tolkien, but I've been a fan for a very long time, and I've been kind of the curator of the collection here, in charge of the collection since 2012. So over the last decade, I've I've learned a lot about the collection, um, working here and getting to meet a lot of wonderful people. That's amazing. You you probably you guys both have like the coolest jobs in the whole world. That's amazing. <laughs> that is so great. Well, and I know uh, um, I know particularly Jude, you have interest in in religion and metaphysics and things like that. And I'll just say that both Bill and I have kind of work and, and interests and research interests in areas of religion as well. So another area cool. of correspondence here. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah that's I... always been my my corner of Tolkien's legendarium is his spiritual and metaphysical corners of of middle earth yeah i i've uh my history my, i wrote my dissertation on a jesuit 20th century jesuit so it's a modern u.s catholicism is sort of my main area and uh I, Tolkien, of course is catholic and so you know the my background's helped me to understand him better in that regard but but it's it's never been with Tolkien. it's not been a real as, as a fan it wasn't like a a point that drew me into him it was for me more it was uh just the the history he created, his subcreated history, I just mm-hmm. took to in a uh, uh, as a kid in a just the way of one would a, a real history, you know, becoming fascinated by it. Yeah, I don't find it at all surprising that someone who would end up with a history PhD would also end up fascinated by Tolkien. I feel like that's a a perfectly reasonable overlap. The way that he built this enormous world. And it's just such deep, deep history, the verisimilitude of that world. I can totally see that appealing to somebody with a with a deep interest in history. Yeah. And in fact, it might have even pushed me in, into being a historian some in some way at some point, somehow. Um, I've met, had a chance to meet a lot of Tolkien fans uh, through a project I could talk about later in the in the in the podcast. But uh, a lot of the fans, I'm, I'm surprised um, a lot of them, their careers have been their choice of career has been influenced by Tolkien in some way in their life. It's really fascinating. Yeah. We have a few questions that Steph very helpfully prepared for us. This is Normally on this podcast, I, as the nominal Tolkien expert, and I want to put like all the air quotes around that. <laughs> I, I have no like official degrees on that. I've just been doing this longer than Steph. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the last year, particularly, Steph has very much come into her own on this podcast as an expert. So I don't oh, want stop. to claim any seniority that is you not stop. there. <laughs> uh, but not normally I am more in the like 
let's pick a subject and talk about it. And But Steph very much took over this episode because this is a, a fun intersection of her professional and personal interests. So these questions are coming from Steph, but uh, we have some really interesting ones. So I'm looking forward to to diving in here. Um, you sort of already started, Bill, talking about this. Mm-hmm. This first thing, but yeah, can you can you tell us a little bit about both of your your histories? Like when you when you first fell in love with Tolkien, what's your relationship to to his works? Why don't we start with Bill? Yeah, so I um I think I for a lot of people they they when they met him in childhood, a lot of times you, you try to remember the exact moment. It's can sort of be hazy, you know, to know exactly <laughs> when the connection was made. But uh, I had older siblings that in high school were reading The Lord of the Rings. And I think I first heard Tolkien's name from one of them when I was a little kid. And then like a lot of people of of my age uh, that were children in the 70s, uh, the 1977 Rankin-Bass Hobbit production uh, really, I think, was probably my first real introduction into Tolkien. And then I think I actually read The Lord of the Rings at 11. And then I think I read The Hobbit. I might have even read The Hobbit after The Lord of the Rings. Um, I, I can't even really remember the order of things. And then um, I think I was 14 or so when I, I really was able to get through this Silmarillion and, and, and enjoy it and kind of crack the code on that. And uh, and that in my high school years was probably I liked more than, than Lord of the Rings. And that was the book I, I read repeatedly. So going into my professional life, I came to Marquette not to work with the Tolkien collection. I've been at Marquette for about 20 years now, almost. And I came actually to work with other collections, but I, I was a fan. I knew the collection was here and I would sometimes offer my opinion or uh, to the curator at the time and, and who was the head of the department. But then um, that individual left to get a job elsewhere. And so in the interim, I was put in charge of, of Tolkien. And then it worked out so well that I was asked to remain permanently working with the collection. And so that's that's kind of how I ended up here. That's amazing. That's yeah. the coolest thing ever, right, Jude? <laughs> yeah. When Steph was describing the collection and the the exhibition to me, I was like, that's like your dream job. Yeah, that's, that's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, it's very that's that's great how it just sort of came together for you. That must have been very exciting to have it just sort of work out very, very much like a not coincidentally, but like a, just a correspondence of cause that it, it just worked out. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of people will tell me that it's it's like the greatest job in the world and that they're very envious of it. I mean, it has its moments for sure. It, you know, it also has its stresses and you know, to be honest, it's kind of a double-edged sword in some ways because I like it a lot, but it's also work in a way. <laughs> and so when something yeah. becomes work, you know, th- th- there's the stress involved with it and the anxiety and then the the workload and the and the projects and stuff, which at the end of the day, I, I you know, usually when I go home, I don't do Tolkien things in the evening. I do, I do things entirely different because I'm, I'm kind of, um, I want to say sick of it, but just need to step away from it. Yeah. Context switch. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think about that. Oh, man. (laughs) And Sarah, what about you? Can you tell us a little bit about your history with Tolkien? Yeah, I definitely was aware of Tolkien from a very young age because he was one of my dad's favorite authors as I was growing up. And I remember us reading. I don't think we ever finished reading The Hobbit together, but started reading it together very often. I mean, he would read Lord of the Rings once a year, maybe every other year. So seeing his copies like on his nightstand, it was a very familiar image for me. My sisters read the books in high school and I tried reading the books a couple times in high school, tried reading Lord of the Rings and just for whatever reason, I wasn't really at a big reading phase in my life. 
And a big turning point for me, honestly, was seeing the Peter Jackson films when I was in college. And, you know, I think between Fellowship coming out and Two Towers coming out, I read them all through twice and, you know, became a huge snob in that interim time period. But, (laughs) you know, it was kind of always nonetheless like in the ether for me. It was, you know, it was like Tolkien was always there. And and again, I've, I've reflected since then and, and in the process of this exhibition on how I kind of came to art history as a potential career path right around the same time that I really started to embrace Tolkien. But it never it never occurred to me in college or in grad school to consider like a dissertation related to Tolkien. And once I finished my dissertation, I I tried to orient my research back in a way that could kind of get me in that realm. And you know, when you think about the people who are big Tolkien scholars in history or literary studies, they tend to be either people like Verlin Flieger, who focuses more on kind of 20th century literature, or someone like Michael Drought, who's a medievalist. And I'm actually neither of those things. You know, um, <laughs> I, I work on uh, on the 19th century. So I got interested in kind of illustration studies and thinking about the kinds of things that would have informed a lot of Tolkien's work, the emergence of a visual culture of like Northern mythology in the 19th century and how that develops out of romanticism and things like that. So there's a lot of that and that kind of ended up in the exhibition, particularly in a lot of references to, to William Morris. But you know, it was really just the serendipity of getting a job in Milwaukee. I mean, I've, I've said this to Bill before, but like, If I weren't an art historian who happened to be a Tolkien fan who happened to live in Milwaukee, I would not have been able to do this project. And, you know, (laughs) it it helps one remain humble in in with respect to something as, as massive as this, you know, and. I'm very, very lucky to have a friend and collaborator in Bill who, you know, embraced my potential coming onto the project from from early on. And we've had a, a, you know, brilliant working relationship ever since then. And that's, you know, we have certainly had our moments of struggle, but I don't think it's ever really been with each other. It's just been with like things that we couldn't control in the process. Yeah, yeah, t- totally. Yeah, it's never. Uh, yeah, it, it's almost I think that this uh, collaboration with Sarah has almost spoiled me for all future collaborations <laughs> I do because we, we got along so well. And I don't think there was ever any point where we were really on different pages. Yeah. Any any sort of anxiety or headache or worry that we've had about the collection has all been external to us. Oh, that's that's really helpful. That really dovetails nicely into our next question, which is like, so how did J.R.R. Tolkien, the art of the manuscript exhibition, how did this come about? How did this collaboration start? I guess I, I could start out here with that. I, it, I, this question has been asked before and I find myself now like constructing a narrative and I feel like, you know, a historian, like I'm, I'm creating a narrative of what, what, what occurred. I don't know if it's exactly yeah. what occurred, but it's the narrative I'm creating <laughs> and Sarah can, can fit, can correct me if I'm wrong on it. But the, uh, the original um, idea for it didn't originate with me at all. Um, it originated rather with my dean at the library, Janice Welburn, and then Susan Longhenry, who is the, the director of the Haggerty Museum. And um, an important thing, contextual piece of information to know, uh, which some of your listeners may know, is that w- we are really the fourth of 
four major Tolkien exhibitions that have happened in the last few years. There was Tolkien Maker of Middle Earth in Oxford in 2018. And then in early 2019, there was the Maker of Middle Earth, a version of it that was shown at the uh, the Morgan in uh, New York City. And then uh, in later 2019 into 2020, right, and it closed right before the pandemic hit, thankfully for them, it was the great... Um, Tolkien journey to Middle Earth at the BNF in Paris. And Marquette was involved in each of these shows. We loaned items from our collection for them. And it was in the wake of the BNF show that Janice and Susan came up with the idea that, that they wanted Marquette to do an exhibition. And uh, I, I can I can even think of the exact moment <laughs> when I first heard about it. We were walking down the steps at this restaurant in Paris, right across the street from the BNF. We had just had lunch with the, the director of the BNF and other dignitaries there and they were thanking us for for loaning the stuff and i'm walking down and janice is behind me and and she and she says i think we should do an exhibition and i have to admit <laughs> I, I i don't know if i was i wasn't facing her at the time my back was to her and i think i might have actually rolled my eyes slightly when she said that because <laughs> I, my th first thought was gosh do you know how much work that is or what, what you you know what that means but but they were pretty adamant about doing it and so i kind of got tasked with really making it happen in the sense of trying to come up with an idea and for it, and then also leveraging all the relationships I've been able to make with the Tolkien estate, especially, particularly and the Bodleian libraries at Oxford to, to try and um, get something planning going on it. And uh, um, we had some initial meetings batting around different ideas of what it might be. I mean, we certainly didn't have the resources to do shows on the scale or or that are like Maker of Middle-Earth or Journey to Middle-Earth. I mean, those were very broad. Um, the, the Oxford one was very biographical in focus. The the um, the BNF one was incredibly expansive. It was, I think, designed in large measure to introduce Tolkien to a French audience that maybe wasn't as familiar with him as, as Anglo-American audiences are. Uh, and, you know, we weren't going to do something like that. So our, ours had to be kind of focused. And, um, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm an archivist. I've, I've never been involved in a museum exhibition in my life. So to just be like, oh, you're the curator of this was was kind of ridiculous. And and they, I think they realized that. And so it was always going to be that I was probably going to partner with uh, Amelia Layden, who is the curator of exhibitions at the Haggerty on this. Uh, and Amelia is, is, one, is a wonderful person. And she sort of became like the project curator of this, sort of like the project manager of the exhibition. And um, it's been uh, other than working with Sarah, I think working with Amelia has been like one of the great, the greatest joys of this of this whole project. Uh, but but Amelia is not a you know knew nothing about Tolkien at all, and it really we we needed sort of help from somebody who kind of uh, could come at it from a, the more art side of things and who knew Tolkien well. And uh, and that's kind of where Sarah came in. I don't know if Sarah, you want to just cut in and tell that you're the serendipitous story you have. Yeah, sure. And just as a side note, there is a story I want to tell about our art historical connection and 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 Tolkien because Steph and I have a a mutual contact, and I have a, a story that you'll appreciate about that. But um, <laughs> it's it's off topic. I just want to remind myself or put out there that it's something I need to tell you. But yeah, so. I had worked with Amelia previously on a very small show at the Haggerty a few years ago. And then in January 2020, I was in a meeting with her and some other people related to a different project. And just we were throwing around dates. It's for the symposium conference coming up and dates were thrown around. And for some reason, the date March 25th came up in these discussions. And I my 
immediate reaction when I hear March 25th is to blurt out fall of Sauron day. And, you know, the other people that are with me are like, you know, what the hell are you talking about? And and I was like, sorry, it's a Tolkien thing. Don't worry about it. And Amelia was like, oh, wait, I forgot you're a Tolkien fan. I'm like going to a meeting later today about a Tolkien exhibition that's being planned for the Haggerty or for Marquette. And I was like, I have ideas. Please let me be involved. And I mean, I think the reason that a big reason that I was able to to come on at the stage and and that that helped in this in these in these initial planning stages was that I I had been fortunate in that I'd been able to see the maker of Middle Earth both at the Bodleian in Oxford and as it was repackaged at the Morgan. I didn't get to see the BNF show, but you know I had seen that exhibition in two forms. So and even though I'm not a curator by by trade, you know, in my day to day life, I do have some curatorial experience. So I think I'd always had percolating in the back of my mind after seeing that exhibition multiple times, like and and being in Milwaukee and knowing that there was the, the archive here, you know, what would I do? I don't think I had, I had sort of consciously articulated any thoughts, but just, you know, kind of had in the back of my mind. It wasn't it wasn't difficult to adapt thoughts that I already had to a project that was already, you know, being formulated. So um, when Bill and I met for the first time to talk about the possibility of my coming on, we had met once before. So Bill does these periodically viewings, public viewings of some of the manuscripts in Marquette's collection, like highlights. And um, I had gone to one of those viewings. When was it, Bill? 2018? Yeah. 17 or 18? I think 17. Yeah. Yeah. So we had met then, and I guess I probably over enthusiastically was like, "I would love to do an exhibition." And Bill's like, "Okay, calm down, girl." <laughs> um, but, <laughs> so, but I, you know, we had gotten along in that first meeting, and I, you know, I don't think I turned myself off to him in that initial meeting if if I was overly enthusiastic. But so, you know, we already had a sense of each other at that point, and it just became very clear in those initial conversations that we were like minded and had the same, both the same you know, I, I think importantly, the same concerns in in our minds in terms of putting something like this together. Like we were both very attuned to the fact that there had been these big exhibitions that were, you know, monuments and 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 real achievements and things we really expected and respected and admired, but were attentive to the fact that we did not want to try to replicate that. And there's a certain extent to which you have to think, okay, that very biographical, broad approach has already been dealt with in these iterations. That's great. But it that then opens up a door to new possibilities and looking at these materials through a different lens or maybe pulling out different materials. So, you know, looking back now, I feel like that was one of those moments in our early conversations that was you know, really productive in, in assuring that we were on the same page. Like we're not going to try to do what these other shows did. So yeah, that's how, that's how I came on board. And, you know, it was just like, like I've said it a million times, but when I first moved to Milwaukee and I knew that this archive was here and was like, Oh, wouldn't it be great if I could do something with that at some point, I doubt that will ever be the case, but you know, maybe. And it's like, that was, I moved here in 2015. And, you know, the fact that it happened in less than 10 years, is like, an absolute dream come to come true. I'm like, I could actually probably die now and I'd be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's super dope. That's so cool. 
What a great opportunity to do that. Yeah, I think um, after having gone to see the exhibition, just kind of talking to your point, Sarah, of wanting to do something a bit different than like, I think Jude and I actually, we were able to go and see the show at the Morgan. So we did that, which was amazing. And But yeah, to differentiate yourself from those blockbuster exhibits that are maybe more more general, like the, I feel like the goals of your exhibition were very beautifully illustrated to showcase these medieval manuscripts and show how they influenced Tolkien's creative process to show the the times where Tolkien himself are, is are using his own or like you know his manuscript process and how that informs the work that we all know so well right and to see it kind of evolve like it was really beautiful and like it was just such a um i just uh, i loved the, the five sections and i loved at the end where you sort of talked holistically about scholarship and how it's changed over the years and how it's sort of you know becoming more accessible and so you know just to just to say you know as someone who's seen the blockbuster and seen um your show which is also i would consider a blockbuster but it just had such a beautiful original feel to it i i really loved it i cannot tell say enough good things about it it was amazing thank you so much i mean, I mean yes. that means a lot especially since you had had the opportunity to see the other show and again like Catherine, who um, was the curator for Maker, you know, good friend of of Bill's and and mine now, too. And, you know, she did an amazing job with that show. And, you know, we have so much respect and for her and gratitude for her help along in our process. But it does mean a lot to, you know, get that kind of of praise, you know, with your having seen that show as well. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Steph. That's wonderful to hear. Of course. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit about the timing of this show, because you you have mentioned these other big, big shows from the past. And there's a lot of stuff happening in the Tolkien fandom right now. Right. So this is an interesting time. Is this did that? Can you talk about the timing of this exhibition? Did it was it really because of this? It just this is when it worked out in the exhibition schedule for the Haggerty. Or is there more there? So the idea really it came in October, November 2019. At, it, I think October 2019 in Paris was the first I had heard of the, the idea. And so we had been batting around some ideas at, by the end of 19. And then Sarah came on board uh, in Jan, was it January 2020. And then that's really when it crystallized around this idea. Of the, the, the Sarah's talking about different lenses and ultimately the lens of the manuscript is what we chose. And that's really, she deserves credit for kind of conceptualizing that. Although it was one of those things where as soon as she said it, I was like, you know, we were instantly on the same page because it just kind of, we came together really, really well around it. And so- Just as a side note to that, I mean, when I was thinking about this manuscript idea I was like looking up Bill on Google and saw that he was leading, you know, and this is before the pandemic, but he was leading a session at the Medieval Congress in Kalamazoo on Tolkien and manuscripts. So I was like, I don't think I have to sell Bill on this idea. Like he's already <laughs> thinking about this. So, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So we started working on it in January. I mean, and then the pandemic hits. And, and I think originally the hope of had been uh, that it would be fall of not of 22, but of 21, that would we would be doing it. But then the, the pandemic hit. And, and I think maybe even before the pandemic really hit, I think the Haggerty with its had kind of pushed it out to fall of 22. Um, and so we entered a period there during the pandemic, like for so many people where you, you just don't know what the world's going to be like when you come out on the other side and whether this project is going to be a casualty of the pandemic or what. Uh, and so we were working on it. We were corresponding back and forth during the lockdown period. 
talking about things we might include in the exhibition and that sort of thing. But then once things started to open up a little bit, that's when the the real heavy planning, I think, resumed more steadily. And um, we were able to just kind of lock in and try to try to make that fall of 22 time period work, hopefully. Uh, It was really just, I mean, it it wasn't just coincidental that that's when the Rings of Power show was, was, uh, was coming out too. And when I realized that, I thought, well, that, you know, that could be great. You know, we could, it could help bring people to the exhibition. Maybe if they, they see that show and they become interested in Tolkien, they might, might direct them to come to the exhibition. So that was a kind of a serendipitous, you know, a coincidence there. Yeah, it's a great, think, great sorry, time yeah. in the fandom to be launching it something like that because I, I know that the attention around Tolkien has been so high lately and it's inevitable that it drives people into all corners of the fandom. One of our our very first interview on, on the podcast was with someone that did a survey of uh, fan fiction writers. And I always mention this. This is one of my favorite things we've ever done on the podcast because uh, she... did this incredibly in-depth survey of like, how did they find Tolkien? What did they they do in the, like, how did they find Tolkien? How did they first get engaged? And then where did they go in the, in Tolkien fandom once they got engaged? And one of my favorite pieces is how there's this huge wave of new Tolkien fans right after the films. And then it tapers off, but then you see them like, filtering back into the various corners of the fandom, like exploring the Silmarillion and the histories and all these things. And uh, I'm really excited to see what the fan, how the fandom grows with these waves every couple of years, as these seasons come out, what the fandom turns into. I'm, I'm really excited about it. And uh, so I imagine that's going to have just a, a really great effect on all the corners, the academic corners are all those things. Sorry, I just had to flash my my left forearm Tolkien tattoo as I saw your left forearm yep. tattoo. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think it, just one thing that might be interesting for us to talk a little bit about, and I don't think it's something we've talked much about in other interviews, so, you know, kind of a feature of this one, which is just like this was a really interesting time in terms of how the dynamics with the Tolkien estate actually changed. Um, and Bill can definitely speak to that more than I can. He has a, you know, a closer relationship with the estate. And I would say a lot of the success of the exhibition is due to his sensitivity to the the politics and the dynamics of that institution. But, you know, another kind of just weird thing that happened in terms of timing was that that first meeting that Bill and I had together was like, I found out later that day and Bill actually found right at, find out right after our meeting that Christopher Tolkien had passed away. So, you know, that was oh, wow. just like right at the beginning of that. I mean, it had happened not that day, but that's when it was announced. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure you're well aware and many listeners are, are well aware of the, um, you know, the complicated relationship that that Christopher had with various adaptations over time and and, you know, that he was not super keen on the Peter Jackson films and all of that. And, you know, when it when the Rings of Power production started ramping up and, you know, we we knew that the that the show was going to be was going to be coming out around the same time as the exhibition. You know, we had to kind of tread lightly in terms of how much we were going to try to draw connections between, you know, just the programming or the marketing of the exhibition and the show just, you know, you never you never know or you you want to be careful in in that in that vein and it was kind of interesting you know in the in the late stages especially as we were 
we ended up kind of corresponding pretty closely with Simon Tolkien. You know, he's, he's one of the directors of the, the estate. He was initially planning on giving remarks at the opening of the exhibition and didn't end up able to actually come because that the opening was the same week as the premiere of of Rings of Power, a little bit more high profile. And he was a consultant <laughs> on the show. And, you know, it, um, but the, the remarks that he repaired, re, uh, prepared were really wonderful. You can watch them online and they're actually going to be um, reproduced. The text of them are reproduced in the second printing of the exhibition catalog that's going to be coming out soon. So um, that's awesome. very exciting. But, you know, it's just I think that the the death of of Christopher which of of course you know everyone is is saddened by everyone who's a fan recognizes how much of a role he had in the in the shaping of of scholarship and continuing work on on um his father's legendarium you know of course we're all saddened by that but i think it'll be really interesting to see how his passing changes the way that approaches to adaptations and things are are handled and you know i'm yeah. I'm a an enthusiastic consumer of adaptations. I think Bill is a little bit more of a conservative uh, uh, consumer of of Tolkien adaptations. So um, we have fun, fun fun conversations on these topics. But it's just like an, in, an interesting kind of concordance in terms of timing that you know there's like big changes happening at the the estate. You know, Priscilla Tolkien just passed away as well. So you know, seeing kind of how those dynamics were playing out as we were preparing was was interesting. I can imagine. Yeah, you can certainly, I don't think there's anyone in the Tolkien world who has heard of Christopher Tolkien that would not acknowledge that they have, you know, there's no amount of respect for Christopher Tolkien that is enough while also acknowledging the extremely complicated relationship he had with anything other than the publishing of his father's works, which was very much... I think the only the only thing he was interested in with with regards to his father's works. And I think it's it's been very interesting to see how that's evolved over time in general. And particularly, I think it, it's the last couple of years with the estate getting more open is exciting, depending on how you feel about adaptation. Uh, but yeah, certainly very interesting. I'm I'm right there with you. I'm I'm interested to see where where we end up. I'm very much anybody, and our listeners will know. Uh, I, this is a drum I bang a lot. I I have I'm very interested in the idea of adaptation. What makes an adaptation good, and and what makes people embrace some and not others, and and things like that. I think it's just like academically, I think it's a really interesting idea. Um, so I'm always like harping on it whenever we come across it with regards to Tolkien or anything else. So I'm always interested in in this topic with regards to Tolkien because it is such a complicated one because of Christopher's point of view on it and Tolkien's point of view. We did a whole episode on when Rings of Power first came uh, came out on the sort of history of Tolkien, Tolkien's engagement with adaptation and stuff. So we have it's been an interesting topic to cover with regards to Rings of Power. So that's that must have been a fascinating viewpoint to have kind of behind the curtain watching the estate go through that evolution or not even go through it, but take the first steps of, of that that new that new era. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not on the Privy Council at the at the estate, so I don't really have like the insider's view of what's going on. My my, I kind of watch them from the outside and have my contacts and get information from them and ask questions and answer questions and such. But uh, yeah, for me, it was kind of figuring out 
like what their view of rings of power was, whether it was hostile or friendly. And uh, I entered this whole idea of the exhibition, assuming that it was going to be hostile, kind of more like one would expect in years past. But I mean, clearly they're, as you mentioned, they're much more open to this. Um, they're more involved in it. I mean, Simon is one of the advisors on the on the show, so there is certainly they're they're working with with the production. So um, that was kind of a relief to know that we could you know we could look for a synergy with with Rings of Power without uh, worrying about offending anybody at the estate. And I thought it was really interesting. And I know you want to talk about the exhibition, and but we can't not talk about Rings of Power, I guess. But <laughs> yeah. um, I, I saw an interview with the with the showrunners where they were talking about they they brought up the fact that the estate and one can assume that by saying the estate, a, a big voice in that is is Simon's. That the estate was more keen on having like internal consistency in the show and a, like a good story versus strict strict adherence to lore and canon. And I feel like that's a perspective that Christopher Tolkien would absolutely not have had if he were you know in in any way involved in the um in the production of the show. So you know, again, interesting shift. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of talking about that's that kind of interestingly dovetails into where we want the next thing that we have on our list here. The talk about the goals of the show with the goals of the exhibition. What were you trying to? What did you want your visitors to take away from the exhibition? Yeah, I mean, I think we've touched on some of the goals already. We didn't want to suggest that we were kind of competing in any way with with the shows that, that were um, mounted in the past few years. We also really wanted to center the discussion around the manuscript collection at Marquette. Your listeners might already know, but there are kind of two main repositories, the Marquette collection and the Bodleian collection. If it's an exhibition that's really focused on art, you kind of have to draw primarily from the Bodleian collections. That's where most of the, the um, you know, the drawings and watercolors and things like that exist. So it was important to us from the beginning to really center Marquette's collection. And as you say, you know, kind of finding, I mean, there, there are sort of like the two layers of the manuscript angle that we foregrounded from the beginning. One is, as you say, the the relationship of Tolkien's work on medieval manuscripts and medieval texts on the development of his legendarium, but also just that, that kind of broader idea of a manuscript as a draft or a working, you know, evidence of, of a working process. And so both of those lenses were were crucial from from the get go. And they kind of manifest at different to different extents um, at different points in the exhibition. And the, the section that includes the pages of the Book of Mazarbul is where it really where both le- levels of that idea come through. You know, so I hope people will I mean, one of my goals is that going through the exit or having gone through the exhibition um, and there are different audiences. So obviously people will take different things away from it. But, you know, that people might uh, engage with Tolkien in whatever way they want, you know, via films, via adaptations, via the books themselves, with a greater attentiveness to that idea of how texts and ideas and stories are actually conveyed materially. So not just that it's text, but it's text like in a book, maybe a handwritten book, maybe a printed book, you know, whatever, their own texts, their own versions of, of Tolkien's work. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a broad sense, that's kind of um, one of the things that that I hope people will will take away from this. 
Yeah, as, as somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about and studying how Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings in particular, I mean, I, I wanted people to come away with a better sense of his creative process. It certainly comes through in the section where we have multiple versions of uh, Gandalf's letter to to Frodo at Bree, uh, multiple versions. And it's just an example of the sorts of things that are in the manuscript collection where he has multiple drafts of different parts of the story. Um, just to give this sense of, of how he created, you know, and revised and was constantly reworking on things. I've had people that have seen that part of the exhibition and they've come away fascinated by it, but also kind of happy and relieved because they're writers themselves and they realize, oh, he he had to work, you know, he had to do the same things that I do, you know, in my writing and constantly revising and, and making something better. So it's I really look forward to ho- hopefully people kind of emerging with that as well. And I think, you know, I, I don't know if this was, well... The the uh, this idea of a, of a tradition of working with manuscripts that you know Tolkien uh, as we drive home very heavily at the outset of the exhibition is this idea that that he is um, himself studying manuscripts oftentimes not not the original manuscripts but some sort of facsimile version of the manuscript and he's working on it and then um, at the end of the show we finish up with a nod to a project that we've been doing in the archives here called Anduin, which is a digital reprocessing of the Tolkien manuscripts to map out and better understand how he created the Lord of the Rings. And it's it's really, it's it's the latest iteration in that same long tradition. I mean, now scholars are coming, you know, come to Marquette to study the Tolkien manuscripts in digital form, just like, you know, Tolkien was studying the the works he loved uh, in fa- facsimile form when, when he was alive, and that uh, and that as as Sarah says, you know the the mean the modes of transmission of this information have changed over time, and we try to capture that um, in the exhibition. I guess you know a thought that came to me that I guess I would I'd love if people could have coming out of it that really wasn't like explicitly on my mind as we were planning the exhibition is the idea. And it comes through in the section, the fourth section, which is really focusing on him as a world builder. And that's this idea of, of sub-creation and that, that, you know, he, he saw, um, I mean, Tolkien saw sub-creation as, as a, as a form of art. I mean, he thought it was like the greatest form of art and, you know, sub-creation can involve paintings. It can involve music. It can, you know, it's, uh, and so in a way, I hope maybe people can come away from the exhibition almost with a little more expanded idea of, of art, you know, a sub-creation that it, it can include a manuscript as, is because I've had people ask me, well, what, you know, what, what's really artistic, you know, what, what's the art of the manuscript? You know, it's like, and, and thinking that through, I think it hopefully ours kind of expands the idea of what art is that it, it can involve these manuscripts being brought in alongside the beautiful paintings that we have, particularly in the last section of the exhibition as people are, are getting ready to leave the experience um, that it all together kind of uh, is, is a, is, is a beautiful art that he's creating. Mm-hmm. That's so well said, Bill. I, uh, I noticed the day after I came or the Saturday mm-hmm. after I was there, I was there on a Thursday I noticed that you had a really cool event and it was a D&D, a Dungeons and Dragons event. Now, Jude and I are like huge Dungeons and Dragons nerds. And what you just said about sub-creation like that, all of a sudden it clicked for me. Like, of course, I sort of wondered like, oh, are they playing the One Ring TTRPG? No, no, they're doing D&D. But that's it. That's exactly what you're saying is like, there's a moment where we're sub-creating a world together and make we're storytelling together and we're making it feel real. Is that is that where that came from? No, actually, and I, you know, but but no, it, it's almost like it just fits perfectly in with it. I totally agree. But no, I, in fact, the the D I D and D I played 
I played D and D since 1982, but I was, it was not my idea to, uh, to include that. <laughs> that was actually the Haggerty and, uh, wow. um, but it does. And I really didn't have a great hand in organizing that particular event, but it does fit beautifully with what you're just saying. And with kind of this idea of subcreation and world building. Yeah. And I think tying that back to the manuscript idea, I mean, it's of course something that is central to how, within the frame narrative, we actually have access to these stories because, you know, it's the, yeah. the, the idea is that it's, you know, through the web, Red Book of Westmarch, through this manuscript that includes the um, memoirs of Bilbo and Frodo, that's our source for The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And the Red Book of Westmarch doesn't exist anymore. It's, you know, so it's like you had this manuscript that was copied in various at various points, and it's a copy of that of that manuscript that is what comes down to Tolkien that he then translates and, and disseminates to the public. So, you know, I love that idea that so, so the manuscript, the idea of the manuscript is there in the very conception of how we even have access to these stories, but still it's a secondhand source. So that idea of kind of reproduction and how these things are transmitted and what kind of changes as you have these different mediations, you know, these different forms of, of replication is, you know, something that is very important within the legendarium, but also, you know, continues through and how Bill is thinking about reprocessing the manuscripts, having them available in digital form. And I mean, just a great example. I mean, when I was rereading Lord of the Rings in the early stages of the planning with with an eye for manuscript references. I mean, one of the things in, in unsurprisingly, the appendices kind of yield the most um, productive results there. But, you know, one of the things that was just mind blowing to me when I read it with this in mind, which is just like the the um, the the uh, script forms that you see on the title page of Lord of the Rings. So you have the Kirith in, in one register and you have the Tengwar in another register and it, it translates to basically, you know, the, the title of the book and 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 that. And But you see in the appendices where it's saying like, oh, this is a Gondorian scribe. So this is coming from, you know, um, the manuscript that was that was written by a Gondorian scribe who doesn't totally know how like how Tengwar works or how Kirith works. So there are actually like mistakes embedded in those things that you see on the title page that is the result of a scribe who isn't as familiar as an elf would be with these languages. And it's just like that kind of attentive attentiveness to like inconsistencies or you know quote unquote mistakes or whatever in that happen through near through tradition or through transmission via manuscripts like that's the kind of thing that a historian like you know only someone with an attentiveness to history like Tolkien was would be able to build into their story and it's just like yeah. I, you know Clearly, I get very excited talking about this. And, you know, there are people like you who, are, you know, you're nodding along and you're like, yeah, it's so cool. And then other people who have friends and, you know, who are Tolkien, who are not Tolkien fans. So I tell this to and they're like eyes glazing over what the <laughs> hell are you talking about, <laughs> including my husband. My hu my husband is one of those people. So. <laughs> no, but that's that's so cool. We have talked about those framing devices a lot on this show. And and, um, you know, and uh, even like the biases of the person who was doing the translation that worked their way in, which we know from the Silmarillion is so important to like how we view Feanor. Right. And like it was written mm -hmm. by a dude who worked for a dude who was super duper like dogged on by Feanor. So, of course, it's going to kind of be written that way. I love that. It's so interesting. 
That is mm-hmm. so cool. Yeah, Sarah, in your essay for the catalog, you talk about layers of transmission and you kind of talk about, you know, scholars working from a facsimile of an older transcript of a medieval manuscript. There's like sandwiches, there's layers in here that you're kind of getting through. And I think for me as a museum registrar, I think about this a lot too, because there's this like aura of the original object. It's like, oh, it's the original thing. But Bill, as an archivist, I'm sure you can tell you 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 know better than anybody that you can't always have the original for whatever you know preservation reason. You can't always have the original thing out, right? So these this I I just loved your panels at the end about facsimiles and about how and 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 Sarah, maybe you can talk a little bit about this, but like this maybe like equalizing this idea of the original object versus like a facsimile where so much so many good things can come from facsimiles, even though they kind of get a bad rap a little bit. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, that I think that's kind of the the way where I would make a connection between my work as an art historian and this project and probably why that informed both the exhibition and my and my essay so deeply. But yeah, I mean, thinking about reproduction versus the, the aura of the original um, that has has entered into a lot of my work. So like my my book that I published last year on, on Gustave Doré, it was, you know, people, um, an illustrator. And, you know, the, the very first part of the introduction of the book, I'm dealing with, you know, how there are, we have these examples of Doré's biblical imagery in Milwaukee that are themselves reproductions of reproductions, whether it's a paint by number or it's a, you know, stained glass window or things like that. So, you know, the the, the kind of aura of the original is is something that if you're dealing with illustrations or anything like that, you kind of have to you have to deal with even if you're, you're the, the, the point is to underscore that it's not as straightforward as we might we might think it is. So one thing that I, I think maybe I brought up in I, I brought up in the essay that I think is worth thinking about here is, you know, one of the kind of inevitable, I mean, there's so many contradictions. And I think, you know, in the in the little of your show that um I I've had a chance to listen to at this point, like I I have really appreciated where you've brought up those points where you know, we we have to look at at Tolkien through a kind of critical lens in order to, you know, and not in a way that detracts from it or or negates it, but just you know adds the nuances that that make it more more productive for points of conversations. And you know, in terms of technology, I think this is something with that with the um, development and kind of photographic facsimile techniques and stuff like that that has an interesting manifestation with Tolkien and it it kind of aligns with how, you know, many people think about technology and how it is represented in Lord of the Rings as um, destructive, particularly in Two Towers and and, um, with respect to to Saruman and the kind of emphasis on the industrial and, you know, the the kind of nostalgia for a pre-modern past obviously is a a, um, big theme in Tolkien's work and has been read in kind of good and bad ways. But, you know, I think he would would have been very aware of the fact that, you know, the kind of research that he was able to do through things like photographic facsimile, you know, productions of, of manuscript, those are the outcome of modern industrial technological development. So, you know, 
you can never have that kind of black and white view of this idyllic pre-modern past and, <laughs> you know, the terrible industrial present. Like um, he wouldn't have been able to do the work that he was able to do without these kinds of technologies. I mean, one of the things we talk about is the fact that he most likely never saw the original Beowulf manuscript, even though it was in the UK. He was a scholar of Beowulf. I'm sure if he had asked them if he could see it, he would have been able to see it. But he was working with a photographic facsimile. So, um, yeah. you know, I think there's there's an extent to which you can see just in that one anecdote that there isn't this wholesale rejection of industrial modern technological development. Absolutely. I'm not sure if I got to where I actually was thinking about <laughs> no, going, that was but amazing. sorry, I've been <laughs> talking for too long. No, 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 that was awesome. Uh, we're, <clears throat> we're kind of getting towards the end of our time. So do you have like an extra 10 minutes, do you think, to... Okay, we just want to ask you a couple more questions. Uh, uh, maybe a really good softball one. Of the 147 objects in the show, 85 of which are from the Rainer and 62 are loans, I assume. Do you guys have a favorite? What's your favorite thing? You should go, Bill. <laughs> you know, it's it's since it's opened, it's bounced around to a bunch of different things. Um, oh. <laughs> I, it's actually sometimes it's like something from the Bodleian. and I think, oh, I love that one the best. And then I think, oh, I, I think of something that we we used in our you know put out in our 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 um from our collection. I, I guess where I'm where I would settle now with that question is an item which actually comes from our uh, collection. And that's a a little scrap. There's a there's a typescript of the of the chapter the law the last debate from uh, um, book five where um, it's a typescript, but on the verso is a handwritten little bit of text that Tolkien ha has done, and it's a this strange fragment concerning a character named Guthrond, and he doesn't appear anywhere in the legendarium, and it's written in a very high style, and it's almost it seems to be that. That Aragorn, who is referred to as King Elessar, is is passing judgment on Guthrond as though he's sort of a, a, I don't know, he's a miscreant in some way, and he's being judged by the king. And it's strange because that name doesn't appear anywhere. It's not, you know, it's not mentioned anywhere in the appendices. There's nowhere else we could find in the legendarium where he shows up. And he was probably just maybe testing a new nib on his pen or something, and, and he was <laughs> had to write something to get it flowing right. So he writes this, but it's just you know, weird, like, where did this come from? What, what was this? And it's just a wonderful little fragment. And I think it links nicely to an item that we have in the last section of the of the exhibition, the tree of Amalian, um, kind of, or the, the tree of tales. Uh, there are a couple different versions of it. There's one that was shown at the Morgan and at the BNF, but w we didn't realize until we were working with the Tolkien archivist at the Bodley and going virtually through their collection that there was another version of it. And so we, we thought, well, why not do the one nobody's seen before. We'll include that one. It's a, it's smaller in size than, than, than the other one that's commonly shown. Um, but this, it's this idea, you know, this, this tree representing uh, all these different stories. And there's a, there's a poignancy to it because there's this idea that Tolkien had all these stories inside of him and, you know, he was only able to use mortal. He was only able to get a certain number out. And I, I love that little scrap of paper because it's almost maybe like a glimpse of it, of a little glimmer of a story idea that he just wrote down. And I'm sure his head was probably swimming with those. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny you mentioned that because I actually copied the entire text down handwritten into my notebook because it was so cool. And I'll read it to you later, dude. It's dope. It's so awesome. I love that one. <laughs> Did you also copy down the Kyrie Eleison that's at the top of the, pa top of the page? 
right? That's that say, on that fragment, didn't it right? Say, I thought that page said something about like going to the shops or something random on top. Th- of there this. was, but then at, at the very top, it's it's I didn't include mention of it because I wasn't sure the linguistics of it because it starts with a C rather than a K, but it mm. seems to be Kyrie eleison, oh. uh, Lord have mercy, which is kind of interesting because it seems to be a. A, 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 like a, a a scene of judgment, and so maybe that was in in his mind. You know, the king is being merciful, um, and you know, kind of sort of ties in with with Tolkien's religiosity as well. You know, obviously, you know, the you know, Kyrie eleison, uh, which I think that also pops up a lot in in the different fragments that we that we have show have are showing in the exhibition. That is so great. cool. That's yeah. so cool. Sarah, do you have a favorite from the show that you want to mention? I do. I mean. Like Bill, you know, it kind of ebbs and flows in terms of what I'm drawn to. You know, when you're walking through with different people, you might kind of draw attention to different things. And just as a side note, I I know one of your since we're running short on time, one of your questions was kind of how do we choose the objects that were in the exhibition? And, you know, it being looking at thinking about the lens of the, you know, the thematic kind of framing of the exhibition and and I for, you know, things that would be visually compelling, like actually narrowing down what was in what was available in Marquette's collection from the 11,000 pages to the the whatever, 85, 86 that we came to was not as challenging, I think, as you might have have thought. There are many, many pages, as you can see, if you go through a, a Anduin of very inscrutable text. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, and we put some of those in there in part to drum up you know drum up appreciation for the work that people like bill do in dealing with these things that are very very difficult to read (laughs) um the one that i think i just keep coming back to is his watercolor of a dragon from 1927 that's in the very first section and it has the inscription beneath that's um from a line from beowulf of um about the coiling beast and its heart stirring and i love i mean i think it's just a beautiful drawing it's a beautiful piece of art to, for for you know just full stop i really like the way that it ended up being situated in the exhibition space because it's right next to the first case which includes um, a lot of beowulf material and then on the other side is a case with some facsimiles including the mr james edited facsimile of a cambridge bestiary and the the spread we include has coiling serpents so you get that connection to the medieval text but also imagery from from the middle ages that he would have been familiar with and in some ways is replicated in in that watercolor but it's just it's actually for me i i often draw attention to it when i'm walking people through the exhibition because i think it's a real testament to his qualities as an artist and he had a really inventive way of 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 representation and it's something that's actually for me prompted a kind of ongoing research project so i'm i'm kind of in the early stages coming out of the exhibition of a of an article i want to work on that that deals with uh, the influence of certain forms of of prints, certain kinds of illustrations, and and how I see that coming through in his work. And it was actually just kind of like actually talking to somebody when we were in the exhibition space during the PPP moot a couple weeks ago that I, I kind of came to a potential like deeper realization about 
how Tolkien creates forms in this project that I have percolating. So That's yeah, awesome. just the just the way that, you know, something that you can see some, I mean, it was already one of my favorite Tolkien works before the exhibition, before this this was being planned. And it's like repeated viewing of it and talking about it, you know, yielding new insights is just one of the one of the things that always happens with Tolkien, but it never stops being exciting when that happens. That's Absolutely. great. Bill, do you think you can talk a little bit here kind of at the end? I'm sorry that we've relegated this part to the end because it's so interesting. But can you talk a little bit about um, your work with Anduin and like the crazy amount of work that you've done with that? And also maybe touch as well on your oral history collection project. We'd love to hear about that. Sure. Yeah. Happy to say a few a few things about that. Yeah. Anduin, um, that's a project that's been really in the works since 2014, 2015 is when I first conceived the idea. And that's for a digital reprocessing of the Lord of the Rings manuscripts in particular, although we're building a system which can accommodate the Hobbit as well nice. and Farmer Giles and the Mr. Bliss material we have. But it really was the genesis was with the Lord of the Rings. And it's an attempt to reprocess and understand better how Tolkien wrote that work. And uh, because the history of the manuscripts is such that they came to us in different groupings. There was the original grouping we received from Professor Tolkien in 1958 is when they arrived at Marquette. Um, but then his son Christopher sent additional groupings of manuscripts over the course of from 1987 um, through 1996, I believe, 1997. As he was writing the history of Middle Earth, when he would finish one of the volumes, he would send the manuscripts related to that volume to join the, the material here at Marquette. And they've always lived separately, like sundered from one another. And um, what has needed to happen for decades now, and it's been talked about since like 1990, was a, a reprocessing of the whole collection to integrate all these manuscripts and understand how they fit together as pieces. And so using relying heavily on Christopher's work in History of Middle Earth, we began a process to map out the collection and all the different portions of the collection and figure out how they relate to one another. And then to find a way to create a database that will allow researchers who visit the archives. Unfortunately, because of the copyright situation, we can't just put the site online for everybody to use. But if you come to Marquette now, you can use this digital system that allows you to navigate through the collection, through um, the different drafts of different chapters. And uh, and so it's like putting a big jigsaw puzzle together, basically. It's been ye years of work and I, the, the timetable for it really had to speed up because once we realized how beautifully this fit into the exhibition, I had to speed up to make sure that by the time of the opening of the exhibition, there would at least be an alpha version of the, of the software that could be used in the archives. And so it is available. We do have a, a kiosk with some images at, at the site. That's actually, it's derived from the work on Anduin, but it's not actually Anduin itself. Uh, what we, what we do there. So if those, if anybody comes to the exhibition, what you'll find it near the end in the, in interpretive space is a large touch screen, which you can go in and you can explore the origins of some famous quotes from the Lord of the Rings. Um, I had done a survey, crude survey on Facebook to sort of figure out what people's favorite lines were from the Lord of the Rings. And so I selected out what seemed to be 12 of the most popular and then went through and figured out the different versions um, that leading up to the final version so they can see how a, how an, a passage changed over time, or in some cases didn't change if Tolkien got it 
right the very first time that he he put it down on paper. Um, but that's a reflection of some of the, the bigger work we're doing with Anduin. So the goal really is to open up the manuscripts to further research by researchers who come to Milwaukee. And the way we've organized it and the way that you, the fact that you can work with it in this digital format, my hope is that it makes working with the collection easier and uh, will uh, expedite work. So like w- something that would have taken a person a month to sit and work on what could now be done in a week. That would be that would be my hope uh, out of Anduin. Um, the other project that that the exhibitions really provided an opportunity to showcase uh, is an oral history project that I began publicly, went public with in 2019, although I think I, I collected the first interviews for it in the summer of 2017 at MythCon. But it's an attempt to capture just brief three-minute testimonials from Tolkien fans explaining how they met up with his works, why they're fans, what Tolkien and his works have meant in their lives. And it's really an attempt to to fulfill a mission that we've had here at Marquette, and that's to document the fandom as well as the actual manuscripts and writings of J.R.R. Tolkien. And there's been in the wake of, you know, really with the internet age, there's been just a proliferation and explosion of fan, I guess, access points. I mean, your podcast being a great example of one of them, there's no way to document everything out there. And so I came up with this idea to try to capture these interviews. Uh, the goal is very grand, grandiose. It's 6,000 interviews. So I've built it around this sort of idea of creating a, a host of fans. It's in the same number as the host of Riders of Rohan that Theoden leads in uh, in The Lord of the Rings. So one <laughs> so fan cool. for each of the 6,000 riders. And so I've been slowly building it and the exhibition has provided a wonderful opportunity to uh, to collect those. I'll sometimes hang out at the exhibition on weekends, collecting them in person. Uh, alternatively, people who come to the exhibition will be will see a poster where they can um, capture a QR code, which would allow them to go online and reserve a, a, an appointment with me to, to do their interview, uh, basically sign up for a slot. And then we meet on Zoom and I collect it that way. So if anybody out there who's, who's listening is uh, hasn't done it yet, I, I would I would urge them to, you know, Google Marquette uh, Tolkien fandom, and uh, you should see a, the, the the page where you could get access to the scheduling page to sign up to do an interview. But it's been a it's been a wonderful experience. Um, I'm doing it not as my own private research project. It's more I'm creating data and information uh, for other people to use. So I make the the recordings available, the transcripts are available. And then also I put the information, the transcripts, and then the demographic information, age, gender, location, uh, into a, da- a data set, which people can download from Marquette's institutional repository and then just play with play with the data, you know, text mine it, just do whatever they want. I think there are a number of projects underway using it where it is right now. I know of some scholars, computational linguists that are already working on it. And so I hope my hope is that it'll be a rich source of data for studying the fandom and how Tolkien's been received by by fans over the years. And getting back to the, the Rings of Power show, um, this idea, um, Jude, you were talking about your excitement about how there are these, these waves of fandom that come, like, for example, in the wake of the Peter Jackson films, and then wondering whether the Rings of Power will have a similar wave. I'm very curious to see if that gets reflected in the in the project for collecting mm-hmm. the oral history interviews, um, whether there are interviews co- that are, will be coming up 
from people that really didn't know Tolkien until they started watching Rings of Power. And that got them, that was kind of their entryway, gateway into Tolkien. Because the goal is so lofty, 6,000, and I'm I'm only closing in on 1,000. My hope, my hope is to reach 1,000 before the end of the calendar year. I got a long way to go. So it could be a longitudinal <laughs> study that will take, you know, a meet from now until I retire before I finish it. But um, hopefully uh, they'll, we'll be able to see these waves that you're talking about even demonstrated in the in the interviews over time that'd be cool that's real that's a really cool project i that's very interesting i feel like jude and i will both be contacting you to do that because I, I would love <laughs> to be a part of it and we'll oh, definitely yeah de- awesome and definitely for the listeners we'll, we will put links to all this down in you know in our show notes and um and on our website so uh, you can Absolutely. get there that way as well this has just been so awesome. Thank you both so much. I have a million yeah. more questions for you. So I wish we could talk forever, uh, but you're both the best. And this has just been so wonderful. So I just want to say thank you again. Yeah. Thank you so much here. for coming on. This has been a, a fascinating interview for me, someone not in uh, academia or museum collections or anything like that. It's it's always interesting for me to look in on Steph's world and uh, learn something new. So this was a, a, a fascinating interview for me. Yeah, thank you thank for having you. us. Oh, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Of course. Do you, can you tell our listeners about maybe any upcoming projects that you have that you want to plug or maybe where they can find you on social media or where, where, where should, where should they go to learn more about you and what you do? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Sarah C. Schaefer, S-A-R-A-H-C-S-C-H-A-E-F-E-R. Um, I also have a not very well-maintained webpage, but yeah, I'm around the internet. If you if you Google me, um, I actually have no writing commitments on my calendar, which is the first time in years that that has been the case. So I'm I, that's what I'm excited about. Enjoy right it. Now. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds great. Oh, thank you. And what about you, Bill? Yeah, I, I really don't have much of a social media presence. I'm, I guess, I'm just of that generation that didn't hasn't embraced it as as fully as some people. I did create a, a Facebook page for the collection, although I'm not very good about um, posting regularly on it. Um, but that would be somewhere to get new information or updated information uh, about what's going on. Uh, I really don't have a, a personal Twitter presence or anything or anything like that. Um, in terms of projects, yeah, the the fandom oral history one is certainly ongoing. Um, that will keep going for a while. Uh, a very Tolkienian project. It's you know about you know <laughs> about not despairing. You know, keeping your hope up <laughs> that you'll reach the end of the journey. <laughs> um, you will. It'll take me a while. Uh, so that's been a ma- that's been a major one as well. I don't know of really any other Tolkien related major projects on the horizon other than continuing work with Anduin to improve that. Because like I said, we just have an alpha version and we, we're, we, we need to, we're developing it further and there's still a lot more work to be done with it. Well, if you need any beta testers, I feel like Jude and I would love to just come on out there a little cheeky, good, take a look around. That would be great. <laughs> I'll keep um, that in mind. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, again, um, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much, um, Sarah and Bill for being here. You are the best. This is awesome. Yeah. Thank you. The road may go ever on and on, but this awesome episode is over. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes as it helps increase our visibility. 
You can find us on the web at www.podcast.atherbeth.com. You can find the show on Instagram at atherbeth underscore cast. And Twitter. If Twitter, if Twitter still exists in December, <laughs> maybe you can find it. Oh, I don't know. I know. Uh, I can be found at Aramedic Jude on all social media platforms. I don't know. Co-host Tumblr. Twitter, again, question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> Steph can be found at the North 4. Producer James, who edits our episodes and makes us sound so good, can be found at <laughs> Jay Pearson. Thanks again to our guests, Dr. Sarah C. Schaefer and Dr. William M. Fliss. Sarah can be found on Twitter at Sarah C. Schaefer and on her website, www.sarahcschaefer.com. Bill can be found on the J.R.R. Tolkien Fandom Oral History Collection website. We'll put the link to that in our show notes. Title music is Lord of the Devil Rings by Pony Music, courtesy of Pond 5. Thanks for listening. And happy holidays! Yay! Yay! At this point, I don't want to know what our music sounds like. I, <laughs> I skipped over it. When I, when I listened to no. Hobbit Ween, I skipped over it so that I wouldn't taint my unsullied ignorance as to what, this, what our music sounds like. Oh, it's the gift that keeps on giving. And just in time for the holidays.